0: welcome to the American Negotiation Institute's podcast, where we will teach you the skills you need to get more out
1: of life. And now your host, Kwame Christian. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiation for Entrepreneurs. I'm Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer by trade, but my passion lies in teaching you how you can use negotiation and persuasion to get more of what you want and how to make the difficult conversations in your life easier. Before we jump into this episode, I'd like to give a couple of listener shout outs. I'd like to give a shout out to Preston from Illinois and Addie from New Hampshire. Thank you both for reaching out. You know, I love hearing from all of you. So if you haven't yet, please connect with me on LinkedIn. There's a clickable link in the episode description that takes you straight to my LinkedIn page. So just connect and I'll shoot you a message. I really want to hear what kinds of topics interest you. And LinkedIn is the easiest way for me to connect with you. And for those of you who are looking for the free negotiation guides from previous episodes, like the negotiation prep guide, the introvert negotiation guide, or the salary negotiation guide, or the car negotiation guide, those links are all in the description as well. Today we're talking to Gary Monti. Gary is the owner of Center for Managing Change, an organization which helps people improve their performance in business as well as personally through an understanding of themselves and awareness of others. He uses a three-pronged approach addressing the business case and associated business processes, project management, and the people and politics in a given situation. For more information, you can contact him at 614 226 1333 or go to his website at ctrchg.com and also make sure to check out his podcast thrive and connect on itunes or you could go to thriveandconnect.com. and connect.com in his work he has to deal with interpersonal conflict and he has to persuade the leaders of organizations to make difficult changes in order to advance their businesses he shares with us some great tips on how to manage emotions resolve conflict and persuade effectively I know you're going to get a lot out of this episode, so without further ado, let's jump into the interview. So, Gary, thanks for joining us today.
0: Oh, thanks, Kwame. I'm glad to be here. I really like this topic a lot. And I'm glad to share.
1: Sounds good. So can you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: Yeah, my company's Center for Managing Change, and at the core, I help people generate abundance, and improve their lives through self-awareness and understanding of others and bringing that into the business. I use a three-pronged approach. I look at the business case and the business processes, and then from there, if changes are needed, I introduce project management to effectively bring about a principle-based change. But there's something else that I do that's really critical in this process, and that is I focus on the people in politics as well because, you know, wherever we go, there we are and we drag all our baggage with us. So what I do is I just run that triad. I call it the business triad of business case, project management and people in politics and just work with the individuals so they can like spiral up and improve their situation.
1: I love it. This is really interesting. One of the things that you said that I'd like to dig in on a bit is self-awareness. And so when it comes to change and even persuasion, why is self-awareness important?
0: You know, I've given this a lot of thought and I like to reduce things to as small a phrase as possible. And what comes to mind that best represents it, it's a little snarky, and I want to back away from the snark, but the (laughs) phrase good. And that is the Peter principle that people rise to their level of incompetence Mm. and success takes people to spots where they just lock up. So I help them unlock through self-awareness because the jamming up of the conscious mind has to do with psychological components that the person has ignored or repressed while they were growing their business. What happens though is success takes us to a spot where when we want to make that next step, it turns out we need to use those parts of ourselves that are underdeveloped or about which we're afraid because we haven't worked with them for a long time. The path then, if it's based on a win-win frame of mind, rather, this is really critical, rather than a win-lose frame of mind, the only way through that obstacle is through self-awareness.
1: Wow, so this is getting deep. And this is getting deep earlier than I anticipated, but let's let's roll (laughs) with this because this is good. So, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like with the Peter principle, you rise to your level of incompetence. So your highest level, you will be inefficient at that level. But it seems to me that that inefficiency is caused by a lack of development of certain parts of yourself. So it's not that you are limited to that level. It's that you are only limited to that level at this point because you don't have enough self-awareness to move beyond it.
0: Oh, Very, very well stated because the pushback I will get is, oh, Gary, the thing you don't understand about fill in the blank with the appropriate business. And as soon as people start telling me the thing you don't understand about my business, then they've run into what they think is a permanent limit. And as you were just saying, Kwame, no, it's not. They've run into it's just time to work on themselves some more to get beyond that limit.
1: That's interesting. And so what's really cool about this is that I was coming into this conversation from the perspective of changing the organizational direction. I was thinking bigger picture. But what it sounds like is that in order for us to change the direction of an organization, we need to narrow it down and start focusing on the individual.
0: Well, we need to do both. That's how I developed the triad, because it's kind of a carrot and stick approach. Yes. First of all, you're correct. Yes, we do need to develop the individual the way to push people to deal with the discomfort of change is to show the benefits of if they improve here's how the organization can improve so you kind of work both of them simultaneously and that's where there's a lot of tap dancing i do when i <laughs> work cuz like all the balls are in the air simultaneously
1: <laughs> right this is so interesting and so in your opinion how do you find yourself using negotiation and persuasion in your line of work
0: pain. Occasionally I get clients that they're very self-actualized and they want to make improvements and they're willing to put themselves through the meat grinder of, you know, working on self-awareness, et cetera. More typically, the style that I use is, well, first off, when I go into an organization, I prefer to do psychological assessments on everyone because I want to define that Peter principle boundary. I want to see where they're strong. I want to see where they're having difficulty and then map. Into their work. And then what I'll do is I'll refer to an apple or a carrot or something that's on the other side of their personal difficulty. And then I'll use that as a stimulus to get them to negotiate with other people in the organization so they can drop that wall and get to that apple, carrot, or whatever that award is wanting to get to.
1: Okay. And for our international listeners that might not know that phrase of carrot and stick approach, can you explain that a little bit more?
0: Yes. And in fact, I'm glad you brought that up. And for the international listeners, and I do work internationally, I want to apologize. If I slip into any colloquialisms or things you can't understand, send Kwame an email and we'll make sure we get that corrected. So I mentioned the carrot and stick or the, the apple on the other side of the boundary. People want to feel good. And there's a phrase I created in my business doing this over the years, and that's called optimal dysfunctionality. And what I want to get to, Kwame, is the need to negotiate. What people will tend to do in their business is they will take the skill set that they have and they'll try to farm out the rest of things they can't do. And that's fine. I'm not an accountant, so I should get an accountant to do my books. But let's assume I'm not good at relating to people. But let's say I'm a cement contractor and I have a really good business pouring patios and things like that, but I don't relate very well. Well, what I can do to grow my business is the quality of my work will get my name around. But what happens is as my business grows, the need to negotiate with people, just the business side of my business becomes increasingly important as my sales grow or as my network of people I'm connected to grows. What can happen is I'll get to the point where my inability to negotiate is pulling my business down. And even though I'm really, really good, I can't get beyond that point. I actually had this happen with a client. He stalled out at a million five a year. He did $1.5 million a year. And he had a real challenge because he had no people skills. And what he tried to do was he started blaming other people. He tried to bring in people that were good with soft skills, but he'd end up making them angry and they would quit, et cetera. And finally, in working with him, what I said is you need to look at yourself. That's the only way you're gonna get through this. Or you can stay at $1.5 million a year. And we worked some and he was resistant and his business stayed at $1.5 million a year. Other clients I've worked with see the, the opportunity to grow their business and do more of what they're good at doing that desire creates a positive tension that gives them the energy to work through understanding themselves better and change the way they work in business. And so we're back to the negotiations you were bringing up. Did that make sense, what I just said?
1: Absolutely. That was really good. And one of the things that I've noticed from listeners reaching out to me is that sometimes they feel as though they are not the person that has the the people skills. That's not their gift. And so in your experience how can somebody who doesn't have that emotional intelligence or those interpersonal skills how can they improve upon those skills
0: Well the first thing that comes to mind is vulnerability and specifically that gets to sharing power and their self critique can be legitimate if they tend to be more of a logical problem solving person there's a good probability that their people skills aren't as good as someone who's you know natural At doing that. Well, at that point, what's needed to grow their business is sharing power. And it's important to construct more win win negotiations and a legitimate sharing of power in the business with those who do have people skills. And here's where the vulnerability comes into play listen to that person with people skills because, you know, let's say this person's been in business for 15 years. Well, they've got some very strong bad habits. And this is where the challenge of vulnerability comes into play, where I work with them to encourage them to say, look, why don't you let, you know, George is better at negotiating than you are. Why don't you let him work on the contract negotiations now? Because he's intellectually capable and he's more empathetic and more of a people person. So why don't you let him do the negotiations instead of you, Mr. President, negotiating all the contracts? And that's why I mentioned the word vulnerability, because now we're looking at sharing power in a very, very significant way.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I like that. And vulnerability is scary for a lot of people. (laughs) So I guess then it begs the question, how do you when you're dealing with these clients, how do you persuade them that vulnerability is the answer? And there's a value in that vulnerability.
0: They need to persuade themselves, and what I do to help is I start with the psychological assessments that I do, and I point out the assessment says where they're having difficulties, where they're having problems, and I'll validate, and I'll say, is that correct? Do you have trouble in negotiations of, say, getting too pushy? I'll take a real common one in the United States. A lot of people that have their own business in the United States, this isn't necessarily true in other countries have this macho approach that, okay, by God, I gotta be on top of everything and I've got to push. And that'll show in their assessment. Show, it'll show very clearly. Then I will take, so I'll say, okay, here's your strong point, and that got you to where you are today. Then I look at their weaker areas and I will map those weaker areas into how they need to negotiate with other people and share power in order to get more of what they want. I actually graph some of this stuff out. I, I try to make it as visual and as simple as possible. So that, let's say we're working internally. It's always good to start this internal to the company. Let's say two people start arguing. They're on the board and they're arguing with each other. And while they're arguing, I always like to have an overhead projector. And what I will do is I won't say anything, but on the overhead projector, I'll put both of their assessments up and I'll point to their weak spots. And then the audience gets to see, oh, this isn't a technical issue at all. They're just trying to protect themselves. And what that does is that stimulates the participants to say, oh, you know what? Maybe I better back off on this because people will swear it's a technical issue. I mean, the council swear it's just a money issue. The engineers will just say it's a technical issue. The scientists will say it's a scientific issue. Baloney. In fact, I tell my clients, your business only goes as far as the politics. And you're eventually going to get to some point where you've got to negotiate. the the ones who pick up on this have a much better probability of doing well. The ones who don't, they pretty much stay stuck in the climate and the dollar volume that they're currently experiencing. And that's okay, I mean, it's their business that they want to do that. The important thing though, Kwame, is markets shift. Nobody needs buggy whips anymore. So I may be the best buggy whip manufacturer from the end of the 19th century, and I'm stuck in my ways and I'm not gonna negotiate, But then as horse-drawn power subsides and gasoline-driven engines picks up, I don't have any skills to negotiate to move to that market. I just keep on saying, by God, I'm the best buggy whip manufacturer and I'm going to stick with this. You can, but in this global economy, there's the risk that your market's going to walk away from you. If a person lacks negotiating skills, they're going to be left out in the desert.
1: That's really good. And going back to your example of putting up people's assessments so they can actually see it during an argument. I think that makes your words a lot more persuasive because one of the things that you want to do when you're making a point is validate your arguments with the use of objective criteria. And when I say objective uh, criteria, I mean um, something that's legitimate in the eyes of both parties, but it's not swayed towards you. And so you're essentially saying, listen, I am not saying this. Your assessments (laughs) are saying this. Yes,
0: you got it. That's it. I'm the monkey that turns the crank. I just administered the assessment.
1: (laughs) That is so cool. Uh,
0: in, In fact, this is pretty good because if you have any professionals listening, one of the concerns they will get is their client will get on them about billable hours. And I will have that. And they'll say, I brought you in to help turn this around. You know, why is this invoice, you know, thousands of dollars higher? And by the way, I have some prefatory comments. I like to go to dinner or lunch or coffee before we start, and I tell them my method. And one of the things I say to all my clients, and they forget this every time, is when my invoices look like they're going beyond what you thought was reasonable, that means you're not doing your work. Mm-hmm. Almost to the person, everyone forgets it until... You know, it's the end a quarter, end a year, and they're going, Oh, how much did we pay Center for Managing Change? And they, oh, you know, we're gonna call Gary on the carpet. And then when they call me in, I'll say, Do you remember what I said? If you want to drive my invoice to zero, do this work. I go away. It's that simple.
1: Hmm. And that's persuasive too. <laughs> okay.
0: Yes. And that's why I put all the balls in the air at the same time because I have found if a person is only takes a counseling approach and only focuses on the people in politics, they're limiting the, their toolboxes too small. What I would encourage your listeners to do is broaden their skills. And that might be, say, bringing someone like yourself into work with them. I mean, sometimes we make our toolbox bigger by broadening our network. We don't necessarily master it all ourselves. But what I found is, When people start repeating themselves, that means the tools that we're using right now aren't working. What I've learned to do is I switch to another set of tools to point out where they're stalled, and I pick tools that they recognize as valid in their industry. So that, I'll give you another example in project management, a classic one I run into. And and by the way, for the listener, I actually come out of project management. I kind of backed into all this stuff. I was just trying to get projects to run well. The team will get beat up unmercifully for not delivering the product. I come in and I talk, I interview people and do the psychological assessments at first. And then what I come to find out is well, the sponsor never gave clear requirements. And what will happen is they will beat up the team. So to get back to my point about broadening one's toolbox, if I only focus on the psychological part, And I'm talking with this project sponsor that's really angry at the team and feels the team, you know, go fix the team, you know, uh, without any reference to themselves. What I will do is, picking up on what you had said earlier, because I work the same way, I go to a business-recognized document or a process that's undeniable, and I bring that back to the person in question. So for this sponsor that wants to beat up the team, I'll say, oh, can you show me the scoping document? Can you show me the initial statement of work that was given to the team? Oh, I never wrote one. I figured they're so good at what they're doing, I could just give them some verbal direction and they would know what to do. And then at that point, I start challenging them. And I will say, what led you to believe that a highly sophisticated product could be developed on a verbal command? And then they start getting mad at me and want to throw me out and... (laughs) 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 I I have a constant love-hate relationship with clients. And I mean that respectfully because my clients will tell you, yeah, that's pretty much it because my job is to be the shield in the garbage fight. And for those that want to negotiate, uh, and Kwame, you and I have never talked about this because we have our side conversations. And I've always meant to ask you, do you ever feel like you're the shield in the garbage fight? Because you're putting your finger on that swollen nerve that's really sore and trying to help people heal that nerve. And sometimes they just notice that you're paying attention. You're making them uncomfortable and that's all the further they get. You know, that, I know that that happens for me a fair amount. I don't know if you experience that.
1: Absolutely. And I think in a lot of times, though, that's my role. So sometimes if I'm doing the negotiation myself on behalf of a client, I'll play that role of the bad guy. And sometimes if I'm the mediator, I have to be the voice of reason in that situation. Um, but also I need to push them and challenge them like you do. And I think an example of that is in one of my recent negotiations, I'm helping one of my clients buy a business. And so we're negotiating the price. But my client is friends with the other attorney's client. And so uh, she doesn't want to push very hard. She was reluctant to negotiate. And you know me, this is that's what I'm about. We're not having that no negotiating thing. So she said, and this is her quote, I don't want him to think I'm a greedy bastard, and I said, well, he can't be a greedy bastard either. <laughs> well, just listen, <laughs> I will handle this. I'll be the bad guy. Don't worry. Your relationship will be fine. And if he comes to you with any complaints, just let him know that I just outsourced this 100 percent to my lawyer. So whatever he does is his own thing. So it's a role, I think, that's necessary in some relationships because. Sometimes the the people in the relationship are not equipped to have these conversations at the high level. So you can bring somebody else in to push either side in a way that would make them feel uncomfortable without jeopardizing the relationship between them.
0: Yes. And that's where having an understanding of what they want. Remember, everyone does want to feel good. Having published statements of what people want, at least to you, you because of the negotiations, you may not reveal them to both parties. You know, simultaneously, but you're right, you've got to be able to come back to, but remember, we're doing this because there's something you want. Right. To try to help them get back on track.
1: Definitely. And I want to go back a little bit to one thing you said that I thought was really interesting because you said that when somebody would say, in your example, that they gave these verbal directions without writing it down and they just assumed people would follow suit. And you said, then I would challenge them. And you said, what led you to believe that X, Y, Z? And I think that might have caught a couple of listeners off guard because you weren't making a direct statement. You were challenging them by asking a question. So what made you use that approach versus making a direct statement?
0: That is an extremely, extremely good question. That shows a lot of wisdom, Kwame. I mean, I, Thank you. <laughs> I think I'll slip your knee and listen to you. That was really good. You can approach, Client, and I'm talking to the listener now. You can approach your client by knowing what you know and telling them, or you can approach your client by asking questions. Ask questions because when you ask questions, ask as many open questions as you can because that does two things it's got a a tension side with it, and it's got a, a comfortable side with it. The tension side is let's go back to my example. When I asked that sponsor, why would you believe a verbal command is sufficient? I'm challenging him or her. But the other thing that I'm doing is I'm pulling myself, I'm pulling my personality out of the situation by asking a question that's relevant to that situation. If I start telling people things, talking at them, And if I do, I mean, there are times to do it because theoretically I'm the expert and I'm bringing in things they don't know. So at times I do have to tell them something. But if I talk to that sponsor by telling him, well, you need to write a clear statement of work, that's not going to work. What's better is to ask, why would you think a verbal command is sufficient? And what that does is it gets it away from putting the focus on me. The kiss of death when you do this work is when they start focusing on you, the negotiator, or you, the consultant. If you become the focal point, pack up your pencils and leave because the situation has collapsed on you. It's much better to stay with questions. Now, this gets to another important point, and this, by the way, is the most difficult one for me, and I have to work on it every day. I have this routine, when I go to the client's office, or if we're gonna have a Skype call or something like that, before, when I go to open the door to clients or when I go to open up Skype, I ask myself, am I prepared? And by that, I mean, am I prepared to stay away from making this about me? Am I prepared to simply be the agent of principle-based activities grounded in win-win negotiations? And sometimes my answer is no. No well, you know what? I won't make the Skype call and I won't go in the client's office because what's going to happen is I'm going to start injecting my personality. Keeping one's personality out of this work is the number one most important principle. And I meditate a fair amount because I want to tell people what to do. <laughs> I'll be honest about I mean what sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander by the way i put myself through all the things i'm talking about what to put your clients through and the reason i do that is to be disarming because when that sponsor gets mad at me for asking you know what's wrong with verbal you know who the hell do you think you are and and i get boy i get called <laughs> more than that at times i will say i'm only asking you to do what i do i'm only speaking you know, one man to another man, one man to, you know, to a woman, this is just part of adult behavior. To do this work, one needs to be grounded in themselves and free of any duplicitous behaviors. And one of the reasons I meditate is the urge to be duplicitous or whatever you want to call it, whatever my shortcomings are. Well, they're always there. They come up. I spend time on making sure I'm the agent of change in the agent of the loving, compassionate, disciplined principles that will help everyone do better in the situation. I guess I'll put a period on that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is really good, because that's one thing I always harp on in this podcast, and that's preparation. So what does your preparation typically look like before you go into difficult conversations?
0: One, where am I with myself? Two, where am I What do I perceive the situation to be? Three, what is my understanding of the participants in these negotiations? And have I validated that to make sure that I'm walking in both with the right frame of mind and the right information about the people? And when I say right, I mean that in the sense of wisdom. Am I coming in in an appropriate way to help these people do better?
1: I like it. That's sounds a, kind of systematic. You yes. Mean? I like that. I like that. So that's a, a preparation approach that you use before everyone. So almost like a rubric, in a sense, or a framework.
0: Yes, that's correct. It is. And that's one of the things I founded Center for Managing Change to help systematize doing this work. Not that now for the listener, this is not a cookbook. These are just guiding principles. Um, You can't just mouth this stuff. You actually have to do it on yourself first. And then you can take it as a rubric out to your clients. Uh, And when I say do it for yourself, let me take my partner, Jenny. We've been together, what, 10 years now. Well, you know, if I'm being out of sorts and I'm not being the best of partners with her, well, okay, I'm not prepared to work with my clients. I mean, this is wherever I go, there I am. I have found that the boundary between business and personal life is only one of degree. And that preparation of self-awareness and am I in a, am I compassionate because everyone needs help every now and then, am I disciplined, do I know my stuff? Am I willing to treat people as equals and listen to their agenda, even if I disagree with it? Yes, I do have a rubric and I take myself through it. And then that helps me systematize things. And then and what that does for the client, it helps put oil on the water. It helps calm things down because when I am consistent in my behaviors in a compassionate way that's disciplined for business. I'm both modeling what's good for the client, and I become a safe harbor for people to risk. Remember that thing at the beginning of our conversation, vulnerability? They'll risk over time showing me more vulnerabilities. And really, my experience is the negotiations don't progress until those deeper vulnerabilities they're trying to protect. They've gotta come to the surface and be seen for things to, to move forward.
1: I love it. And as somebody who is an avid preparation buff, <laughs> I really respect that too because it's almost impossible to think through things just off the cuff. You know, oh, there are going yes. to be things that we miss because we're humans and humans make mistakes probably more often than we do the right thing. And for the listeners or the new listeners who haven't downloaded it yet, remember to download the free negotiation preparation guide. So you could go through that and see what type of things, what kind of questions you need to be asking, kind of like the questions that Gary asked before his difficult conversations to make sure you have everything in order. So if you go to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash prep, you can download that free guide so you can be ready for your next negotiation. And so I know we're coming up on time. So I want to end this interview with um, a word of wisdom or a challenge for the audience. So. If you could challenge our audience to do one thing in the next week to be more persuasive, what would it be?
0: I would encourage them to find someone whom they trust and ask that person, can you tell me when I don't listen? Mm, I like that. Well, I mean, you're a very sharp guy. You probably know why I'm doing it because we typically are blind to our shortcomings and we have all sorts of defense mechanisms to not see ourselves do it. Self-awareness is very difficult because we like to protect our weaknesses. And this takes courage. <laughs> and that's why I say pick someone you trust to, to start with and ask, when do you find I don't listen to you? In fact, make it very personal. And I would encourage them to do it with several people, but just start with one person and then watch yourself. See how you respond when you're given that feedback as to when you don't listen. Pay attention to whether or not you're squirming, are you getting angry, are you blanking out, or you have to ask them to repeat. Okay, those are all signs of resistance to self-awareness. And then decide what to do with that negative energy that's coming up If it does come up, some of you may actually appreciate the feedback very easily, but statistically, most people are resistant. Then start paying attention to that and take that energy, that frustrating energy that you're having and ask yourself, well, if I channeled this into listening better, what would I do? How would I listen better? And then you're path.
1: Mm -hmm. I am so excited about this because this, this reminds me of a book I listened to on on listening. And they challenged you to essentially do the same thing, but they said on a scale of one to 10, give people a scale of one to 10 and have them grade you. And so let's do a little experiment here in in the last moments of this episode. So we've spoken a few times over the past year or so, Gary. So in your opinion, on a scale of one to 10, where would you put me? And don't take it easy on me because we're in front of my audience. (laughs) Don't worry about that. So what, what would my grade be?
0: Um, one time it was a four, and another time it was about <laughs> 8.5 to nine. I think of instances.
1: See, see, this is interesting because when I asked my family, I scored a lot lower than what I did in professional situations. And that surprised me. And so it took me off guard because communication is my thing. And so I was feeling really <laughs> good about it. And and I got failing grades. (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. And so, what I noticed is that I have a different level of listening the closer the relationship is to me. So, if it's a business relationship, I can be very good at it. But if it's a closer relationship, like a friend, I'm worse. If it's a family member, I'm terrible. And so, that was some hard feedback to get. And so, I had to ask, how could I do better? I don't know if I have because I haven't asked the question yet again, because I'm I'm afraid, but...
0: If I can extend that a little, you are going down the right track. For the listener, if that's a bit too much to do, I like what you said, Kwame, and let's go to the fact that the more intimate it gets, the more difficult it becomes, that, you know, your scores drop with intimacy. For the listener, what you can do is, if this feels too hard to do, take the people that you have a hard time with in your life, and write down their character traits and the things that, oh, and another thing, you know, this guy really torques me and makes me angry. Write down what frustrates you about that person and do it with several people. What you have when you've done that process is you have a mirror because there is something within you that you're not looking at that adds to the, that creates the frustration you're feeling with that person. So you can use the people around you as a mirror. Kwame, thanks for having the courage to talk about. As you get closer to family, it gets more difficult. And there's a reason for that occurring. When we connect with people, I'm gonna go back to the thing about optimal dysfunctionality, and I'm gonna be a little Jungian here. And just in Jungian psychology, there's eight components to to getting information, solving problems, dealing with people. And what happens is we're all strong in a couple of them. And since we want to feel good and we don't like discomfort, it's very easy to hook up with, to marry, to have a business partnership with someone who's strong and our weaker components like, oh, I just took a shortcut because like the, the one guy is telling you about the cement contractor. Oh, I don't have to worry about feelings because I'll just hire people that are good at feelings. And then he just ended up making them angry and driving them away. So what happens is infatuation. When we first connect with someone like, oh, man, this is going to be the perfect business relationship. This is going to go really great. When you feel that giddiness, that is a tip off that your listening skills are really low because the giddiness is about, oh, that person's going to do what I don't want to do. That person's going to do where I don't want to be confronted. And then what happens is. When we're around that person, they start becoming a constant reminder of the things we're not good at. And the infatuation wears off. And suddenly that business partner, it's like, God, I wish he'd get hit by a bus or something because I can't stand working with him or her anymore. It's all about ourselves and our willingness to be open. I think that's really good. And I like the fact, Kwame, that you brought up the one to ten on a scale. How good of a listener am I? or am I not, that is really good. Make the rubric out, of it. make it measurable, make it external. Because the more you can externalize this stuff where everybody can look at it and talk about it, the chances for success go up accordingly. Right. And by the way, the one last thing, the success might be it's time to end that relationship. Because you may honestly find out this isn't working. And then you get into another set of negotiations that Kwame's quite good at is, okay, how are we going to dissolve this? How are we going to do it in an equitable way?
1: Right. See, this is really good. And I think uh, to your point, like when you gave you, me my grade, you didn't just give me an overall grade. It was one time it was a four, one time it was an eight, one time it was a nine. And it's mm-hmm. just like a performance, just like an athlete. You could have an off day and you have to be aware of what are those things that throw you off. And I know for me, as an introvert, sometimes I get tired and it's hard for me to stay engaged in conversations just because I'm, I'm cognitively spent. And other times it's because I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I have a lot of ideas. And so if somebody talks to me and I get a lot of ideas, I start to wonder. And so you have to be keenly aware of your weaknesses and learn how to combat those or compensate for them when it comes to uh, managing your listening ability.
0: Yes, yes, very well stated, because that's one of the reasons I do the assessment, so that I try to teach people to see their strong component starting to dominate the situation, and you know what happens to listening skills at that point. As the people start dominating with their strengths, their listening starts dropping. Mm I agree with you completely, uh, Kwame. You gotta watch, like for you, it's options and possibilities, and if you get too many, you can spin out of control with too many options and possibilities. Yeah. For me, it's drawing conclusions. I'm really good at looking at things and drawing conclusions. But if I take that too far, eh, I start creating problems. <laughs> and I back off and be more empathetic.
1: Wow. See, this this has been great because I think I love interviews where I get a lot out of it (laughs) and I have to leave and uh, do some introspection on how I could get better. And so I'm hoping that the uh, audience had a similar experience. So thank you again, Gary, for coming. This was really good.
0: Oh, you're welcome. I, you know, I appreciate the opportunity. You can't hold on to this stuff. All you can do is kind of pass it around. So um, thanks for the opportunity, Kwame. I enjoyed it.
1: I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you find this information helpful, please leave a review and subscribe. My goal is to teach these skills to as many people as possible, and leaving a review helps our search results, which helps us to reach more people. Remember, success and failure is determined by how we handle these critical conversations in our lives. My job is to make these difficult conversations easier while getting more of what you want in the process. I've had the opportunity to provide these negotiation and mediation services to a wide variety of professionals, including lawyers, entrepreneurs, and warring business partners. I do this through a simple three-step process. Situational analysis, strategy creation, and plan implementation. First we analyze the situation to get a lay of the land and understand exactly what we're dealing with. Then we use the information from our analysis to create a customized strategy for your situation. And then we work with you to put these powerful strategies into action so you can close the deal or resolve the conflict. If you don't prepare properly, you run the risk of missing out on these critical opportunities. Remember, negotiation is the art of deal discovery, not deal making. I will help you to find the best deal possible and I'll teach you how and when to walk away from a deal that's bad for you. Sometimes the worst outcome in a negotiation is a deal that never should have been made. When we work together, you'll know that you've put yourself in the best position for success. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email if there's a specific problem or opportunity you'd like to work through. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a great week and I'll catch you in the next one.